wanted to talk a little bit about the secret of life. We've been doing that over the last few weeks. I've been talking about, obviously, the contemplative way for, for some time. Last week, the name of the message was an Ecclesiastes State of Mind. And uh, we're talking about uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, but really about what Solomon figures out is really the meaning of life. And if you ever read Ecclesiastes, you know, you want to have a lobotomy after that because he just, it's just so depressing and so heavy and everything is vanity and everything is meaningless. There is nothing under the sun that is new. But then buried in there, you know, chapter by chapter are these little gems and it's saying the same thing over and over again, you know. The Ecclesiastes state of mind, the place that Solomon actually gets to, begins with this gnawing realization that life happens, everything happens right here, right now, bounded by this moment, bounded by this day, bounded by this generation. You know, there's nothing out there. This is all we get. We get this moment. We get this moment eternally. We think of our lives with, with a, a future that extends out from this present moment like a path, and we just have to find the path. But really, the future doesn't exist at all. There's just this moment and the choices we make in this moment as we step into the next moment and the choices we make there. You know, the sneaky thing is, is that looking backward, looking at the past, we see a straight line. We see a path that we've taken and we assume that it goes that way into the future, but it doesn't. Each moment, we're just presented with kind of a cloud of choices, a cloud of possibilities, a cloud of possible futures that are created with each choice we make, each decision, each connection. And this is what Solomon is figuring out, spending his whole life building, accumulating, experiencing, thinking that meaning was in each one of those things, only to find out at the end of the life, end of his life, it was Havel, which in Hebrew means breath, mere breath, vapor. It's meaningless, it was pointless. It had no purpose. But what was the purpose? The purpose was to enjoy whatever you're doing the moment that you're doing it. To eat and to drink, to share with friends, to love the work you're doing, whatever that work happens to be, even if it's not a job that you particularly like. To throw yourself in, to immerse yourself into that work. To see how that job connects with the lives of other people. To see how it has meaning in that chain whether it's the paycheck that you bring home to your family, whether it's the product that you present to the customers, your piece, your cog, your bit connects to every other bit and every other cog. To see that tapestry, to see that, that work, machine works, however you want to imagine it, is to find your place and to find meaning right here and right now. Because the truth of the matter is, if you don't find it here, you're not going to find it anywhere. Meaning is not out there someplace. Kingdom is not out there someplace. It's here. It's now. It's within. It's among. It's in the midst of. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. This is what Solomon finally starts to understand at the end of his life. We're all like amnesiacs who only get one day of memory. Every day you wake up, your memory is washed. You've got to learn everything that you need. Get everything that you can out of one day because the next day you start over again. Every baby born is like that. 
Every baby born starts with a blank slate, has to learn everything it means to be a successful and, more importantly, a purposeful and a meaningful human being within the span of that moment, that day, that life, that generation. Now that sounds maybe trite. We've heard stay in the moment at least a million times. It's coming from everywhere. It's gotten really trendy to talk about mindfulness and staying in the moment. But analyze your attitudes. Analyze your choices. Analyze your behavior. Are you really living as if this is the only moment that you have? As if all meaning and purpose and what it means to be a human being is here and now? Or is it someplace else? How worried are you? How stressed are you? How anxious are you? How much do you obsess over past and future? How much do you worry about every choice you make in terms of where it's leading and the effect that it's going to have against some sort of agenda that you are superimposing over all these moments? How much fun are you having? Are you enjoying the ride? Can you just let go of all of the stresses and strains that life you know, is heir to, as Shakespeare would say, and just enjoy what is happening right in front of you? Can you sit at a table and just look at the ring of faces and just laugh and just feel like this is a great moment? There's no place I'd rather be. There's no one else I'd rather be with. Nothing else I'd rather be doing. Can you do that? Because if you can't, or if that's difficult, or those moments are so rare in your life, then you're not living as if this moment is the only moment you have. You still believe that truth is out there someplace, that meaning and purpose are out there someplace. And if we build and if we accomplish and we do certain things, we can actually get there. Look around. Look at these faces right here in this room. This is it. I hate to say this is as good as it gets, but you know what? Frank has, Frank has a great line. He, he says, you know, to, to newcomers who are coming into the program, he says, you know what? The good news is you never have to drink again. Bad news is these are all your new best friends. You know what? This can be really good if we're really here. Are we here? Are we now? Are you sitting in here and thinking about out there? Are you sitting in here and wondering what you're going to have for lunch? Are you sitting in here and wondering when I'm going to stop talking? Are you sitting here <laughs> and judging everything I say against what? Some biblical standard or some this or some that? Can you just sit and let things wash over you and be present? This is what we're talking about. Now Solomon doesn't exactly say that, but he says something really close. There's nothing better for a man, for a woman, to just eat their meat and drink their drink and love their work. This is what we're talking about. Are we living that way? Can we even get there? Can we do this? You know, we think about our heroes when it comes to the, our, our attitudes toward accomplishing things. We think we know who our heroes are. They're the ones that we see on TV. They're the ones we read about in the paper and on the internet and social media and in books. They're the ones that are getting splashed all over every media outlet and type that there is these days. But you know what? The greatest heroes, the, the, the greatest people working at their tasks are probably those you will never hear of. You will never know their names. Sometimes politicians like to trot a few heroes out, you know, 
but they do it for cynical and, and you know, agenda-driven reasons. But the truth is there. The greatest heroes, the people who are really driving things forward, the people who are the most completed human beings are the ones that don't seek the light. They don't seek the spotlight. They do what they do, and they would do it if nobody was watching and nobody was paying. They do those things because that's who they are. That's their integrity. That's what they're all about. And we'll never know who they are. And people may never know who you are. And if that's not okay with you, then you haven't learned Solomon's lesson. If you can't be okay with the fact that your heroism, your integrity, the way that you live life may not be noticed by the masses, then you're still out there someplace projecting, trying to be good enough. Now, it's certainly going to affect the people around you. I was talking to a friend, a young man, and he was telling me the story of a family that he grew up nearby. And he said the mother of that family was a spiritual giant as far as he was concerned. He said she was the kind of person who could just make every gathering completely connected. She made the house a home. She drew them in, made them feel at home, made all the difficulties in their lives just kind of melt away by presence, by connection, by lack of ego, just by being right there. Her kids have grown up great. My friend is better for having known her, still is in touch with her. We don't know her name. I do, but you don't know her name. And you never will. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to her. She is who she is. Can we be who we are? Can we let all that stuff go, all that noise go, and just let this be okay? You know, a hero is not someone who completes the journey. A hero is someone whom the journey completes. And that's a very different thing. To be completed by the journey is to have allowed yourself to be so immersed in life, to allow yourself to be hurt by life, to be traumatized by life, and to come back for more, to realize that connection is the most important thing, not a painless life. And what that teaches is the sanctity, the sacredness, the preciousness of every single moment. This is where we're trying to go. And late in life, Solomon was completed by his journey. Late in life, Solomon became a hero. And he writes the book of Ecclesiastes. He tells us what he has found. Now, he could have continued building. He could have continued accumulating. And the world would have revered him and remembered him. And they would have engraved his deeds on stone that we would be still reading today. But by becoming a hero he realized that all that stuff is meaningless. To simply love whatever you're doing, when you're doing it, that's it. That's as good as it gets. That teaches us who we really are because it connects us with the deepest parts of life. Now, another way to put this, and many have put this this way, is that Solomon transitioned from the first half of life to the second half of life. He made that move. He made that, that distinction. The first half of life, and this is not just chronological, but the first half of life, the first part of your life, is characterized by building and accomplishing and doing the things that we do. The second half of life is seeing that all those things don't really matter in the end. 
we still can do them. We can still work hard. We can still be engaged. That doesn't mean that we don't have goals and agendas. But we realize that our meaning runs much deeper than that. There's something far deeper than just these things that we can do. Richard Rohr is a big proponent of the second half of life and second half of life spirituality. And I wanted to read just a couple of paragraphs from his book, Falling Upward. He writes, we are a first half life culture, a first half of life culture, largely concerned about surviving successfully. Probably most cultures and individuals across history have been situated in the first half of their own development up to now because it's all they've had time for. We all try to do what seems like the task that life first hands us, establishing an identity, a home, relationships, friends, community, security, and building a proper platform for our only life. But it takes longer to discover the task within the task, as I like to call it. What are we really doing when we are doing what we are doing? It is when we begin to pay attention and seek integrity precisely in the task within the task that we begin to move from the first to the second half of our own lives. Integrity largely has to do with purifying our intentions and a growing honesty about our actual motives. It's hard work. Most often we don't pay attention to that inner task until we have had some kind of fail or fall in our outer tasks. This pattern is invariably true for reasons I have yet to fathom. So the task within the task, what is that? Y'all remember the movie The Karate Kid? Anybody not seen? It's kind of iconic, right? You've seen The Karate Kid at some point in your life? All right. Little kid moving from New Jersey to California, gets bullied, really wants to learn martial arts, wants to be able to fight back, wants to be able to defend himself, wants his respect and his honor back. He befriends the, uh, the janitor around his school, Mr. Miyagi, and finds out that Mr. Miyagi is Okinawan and he knows martial arts, and so he asks him if he will teach him. Sure, come over to my house in the morning. He comes over to the house. First thing he has him do, wax the car. Here's all my cars. There's lots of cars. Fine, but wax this way. Wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. Okay, so he's waxing cars. When he gets the cars done, okay, I want you to sand my new deck, sand the floor. Sand this way, and he shows him how to do it. After he's done with that, paint the fence. But when you paint the fence, it's up and down, and it's side to side. Okay, after weeks of this, the boy is doing all this work for him. There's that great scene where he just flies into a rage, and he says, I'm just your slave. You're not teaching me anything. I'm out of here. And he has him come back. And he shows him how each motion that he was doing, in the proper way he was doing it, was a move that he was going to need if he was going to learn martial arts. And so, what was the boy really doing while he was waxing and sanding and painting? What was he really doing? He was learning. He was learning a task within the task. There was the task itself. Yeah, the cars got waxed and the floor got sanded and the fence got painted. But there was a task within that task that was much deeper and it was completely on point to his purpose. But he didn't see it. And Miyagi didn't tell him. Why do you think that Mr. Miyagi didn't tell him what it was that he was doing while he was doing those tasks? Seems kind of cruel, right? Maybe he really was trying to get, was that his motive to get the work out of him? No. 
If the boy knew that he was practicing karate, everything that he thought he knew about karate would have gone into those movements and would have messed it all up. Because he didn't know anything about karate, but he thought he did. That thinking, that breaking the disconnection between what he was doing and what he thought about what he was trying to do made all the difference in the world because now the movements were pure. They were just right and they did exactly what they were supposed to do. In that little sparring that they do, he successfully blocks every punch and every kick. There was a task within the task. That's what we have to understand here. Anyone ever been to one of those corporate retreats? I can happily say that I've never been to one. But you know, they take you on these survival hikes out in the wilderness. They set you in these obstacle courses and they have these team competitions and everything. Why do they do that? Why does a company spend all the money and the time and a loss of productivity to send a group of their employees out to do something like that so that they can become great outdoorsmen? I don't think so. Every one of those is set. What's that? Problem solving, team building, you know, group thinking. It's all the task within the task that's important. Then when I grew up, I had something wrong with my feet. I don't even remember what it was now, but I had to wear braces, I remember, at night. And every night I had to do these exercises. I had to take my shoes and socks off, and I had a little cup full of marbles. And I had to pour the marbles out on the ground. I had to pick each marble up with my toes and put them back in the cup. And when I was done, I had to pour them out and do it with the other foot. You know, hey, I'm really good with my toes and marbles right now. Is that important? You know, all physical therapy is like that. You do some task, but that's not the reason for the task. There's something deeper that goes on. Or these brain games that I keep hearing ads about. You can go online, you play all these games, right? Well, it's not just the playing games that has any purpose because they say if you play these games, you won't get Alzheimer's and you'll get really smart and you'll remember things better. There's a task within the task. What we're saying here is that life is exactly the same way. Life is a task within a task. Yeah, we're all here. We've got to have jobs and we're going to you know, raise families and we're going to build houses and we're going to do all the things that we do. Some of us are going to write books and some of us are going to build companies. Some of us are going to have causes and missions and ministries and things that we do. And in the first half of life, we think that's what we're about. We think that's our identity. We think that's our purpose. But it's not. There's a task within the task. We have to realize that it's still important in life to work hard. I'm not making uh, a case here for sloth, for just laying on the couch and just saying, okay, well, none of that stuff is important. That's all just breath. That's vapor. I don't have to get up and go to work. Well, yeah, you do. And it's important to go to work. And it's important to work hard. And it's important to care about excellence. And it's important to be the best that you can be in whatever it is that you're doing. But we have to realize that this is just the outer task. That every one of these activities, everything that we do, serves a deeper, inner task. And so the question then remains, why doesn't God tell us what the inner task is? For the same reason that Miyagi didn't tell the kid. Because if we bring everything that we think we know to the task, we will mess it up. We won't do it right. But if we allow ourselves to simply be immersed in the task, then the mist starts to clear. Then we can start to see what it is that's underneath. 
In Ecclesiastes, Simon re- Solomon realize, realizes that the outer task, everything that he had done in his reign as king, was Havel. It was meaningless. And it took a fall. It took a failure of those outer tasks in terms of fulfilling him. Even the wisdom that he sought and was granted ultimately failed him from fulfilling that sense of meaning and purpose. As he continued in these tasks, he realized none of this was scratching the itch. None of this was taking him where he really needed to go. There was something deeper that he needed to find. He had a midlife crisis. I don't know what a point that midlife crisis was, because a midlife crisis doesn't have to be chronological either. A midlife crisis is a crisis of meaning and purpose. Typically it happens in midlife. Typically it happens in your 30s. That's midlife. 70, you know, that's a good span. Midlife, getting old enough to realize you're going to get old and die like everybody else. Getting old enough to realize that everything that you set out to accomplish in your 20s, you did. And it's Havel, it's meaningless. Because what next? Now what? Or you didn't accomplish the things you set out. And it's Havel, and it's meaningless. And now what? But you realize that there has to be something more. There has to be something deeper. And at that moment, when the curtain gets pulled just enough, then that vanity, that worthlessness, that meaninglessness is revealed. And now what? What do we do? This is the point at which everything becomes possible. In the first half of life, we think we know. We think we understand. We think we know what reality is. We think we know what our purpose is. There's no cracking that particular nut. There's no breaking through that mindset. But when you get cracked, when you get mugged, when life presents in such a way that suddenly you realize you're not equal to it anymore, you don't have all the answers, now you're teachable. Now everything becomes possible. Now we can move into the second half of life because now we have the ability and the possibility of realizing that every moment is sacred. Every moment is significant. Because we start to realize that the contents of the moment, the circumstances of the moment, are not important. They're the outer task. They're the framework, the thing that we do. But they're not what is at issue. Just wax on, wax off. What we learn is that every moment presents an equal opportunity. It's an equal opportunity moment. An equal opportunity to practice, to immerse in, to become aware of the connection, the presence that really is the inner task. What is the inner task of life? Well, we say religiously it's to glorify God. What does that mean? That means to reflect God's essence, to reflect who God is. What is God? Unity, connection, relationship, love, forgiveness, healing, deliverance, salvation. Throw any word you want. That's who God is. That's what God is. When we allow ourselves to let go of what we impose on a moment and just see what's there, become really present. When that hard shell of first half of life identity cracks just enough, then we can see the unity, the connection, the integrity that is at the heart of this thing. That's our inner task. 
to find that, to live that, to become identified by that, so that all of our choices reflect the primacy, the value that we place on relationship and unity and connection. You've probably heard me go on and on about God's purpose being a how and not a what. You know, we all want to know God's will for our lives, but we think in terms of what? We think in terms of first half of life mentality. What are the things that we are going to accomplish? What are the things that we are going to do? I need to know that plan so that I can execute it perfectly without any risk. But God's will is really a how. I don't know that God cares what we do, but he cares deeply how we do what we do. That how is equal opportunity in every moment. And as we move into the second half of life, the how takes the forefront. Sometimes it's a traumatic event that can trigger us into a second half of life attitude and mentality. Maybe it's a heart attack. Maybe it's a cancer scare. Some of you in this room have had those. You've told me these stories. And you told me how it had changed you before and after. Maybe it was a divorce. That was my particular traumatic event that cracked that shell of what I thought I understood up to my early 30s and propelled me into a different direction. Maybe it's the death of a loved one. It can be anything that is intense enough for us to begin to see that we don't know all the things we think we do. Begin to question the veracity of the things that we think we know. For just a moment there, in those intense moments, we suddenly get a glimpse of that man behind the curtain. Remember that guy? Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. But once you see him, you can't unsee that. You know, you're looking at the great and powerful Oz and you realize it's this little guy over here turning the crank. Well, okay. The illusion is broken, forever broken. You can't unsee that. You know, this is what we're talking about here. You know, the emperor that has no clothes, the little boy can see that, but the adults have their agenda and have their reasons for paint, pretending that they don't. You know, but to see that, to really see that. Or a magician's trick. Once you know the trick... It's not fun anymore. The illusion is broken, and it's forever broken. These events unmask life. They break the illusion. They show us the trick. They show us the task within the task. And we're never going to be the same after that. We know that we know something else is at work. And even if we go back and double down and try to go back into that building mode, there's something in us that knows better. There's something in us that knows that something else is different. And remember, this is not chronological. This isn't about people who are in their 40s and 50s only. Young people have often suffered so much. That has happened. And very young people in their 20s can move into a second half of life mentality because they've had that break in that shell. They've had that curtain pulled back. You know? Have you ever met someone who has not really suffered much in life, but life just seems to be golden I mean, all the time? You know, they seem somehow naive, don't they? Maybe a little superficial. They don't seem to have the gravitas, the connection, because they still believe the illusion. They're still going on as if life is all outer task and no inner task. Conversely, some people have suffered so much way too early in life as children that they can't face what they have seen. And so maybe they double down on the illusion. Maybe they have to go back and try. Or maybe they use something like work or drugs and rock and roll and sex and I don't know, anything that you can to just try to keep yourself anesthetized enough to go forward. But each one of us has the responsibility 
to try to do this, to feel the things that we need to feel, to face the things we need to face in life in every moment, to really be present to it, to let it do its work on us. In the Bible, there's a great story. And I think it illustrates what we're talking about here. But you probably haven't considered it as illustrating this particular concept. And it's the story of Jacob and Esau. And I don't know if you know too much about Jacob and Esau, but they were twins. They were sons of Isaac and Rebekah. But take a look at Genesis 25, and you can get it, get it in your um, bulletins, or I think Brandon will probably put it up on the screens. And this is the story of their birth, the birth of these twin boys. When her days, that's Rebekah, to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Don't you love the Bible? I mean, I love these little details. This is, can you imagine this little red baby that's all hairy? I and mean, that is just so cool. And, and Esau, we, we pronounce it Esau, you know, Asav would be the Hebrew. It means hairy, hairy maid. <laughs> and that, that's his name. Every Hebrew name means something. Isaac means laughter because he laughed when he heard in his old age he was going to have a boy, you know. Isav means hairy, means hairy maid. And so he's red all over like a hairy garment and they named him Esau. Afterwards his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Yaakov in, in Hebrew means heel catcher, one who hangs onto the heel. Or really what it means is supplanter. He's going to be the cunning one. He's going to be the one who's always scheming, always trying to figure things out. You know? And even though he's second in the birth line, he is hanging onto the heel for dear life there. All right? Where was I? And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And here comes the setup for the the crisis. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. Edom means red in, in Hebrew. But Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. The firstborn got the birthright, got the blessing, got the ability to manage the father's estate. Sell me your birthright. Esau said, behold, I am about to die, so what use then is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, first, swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way, and thus Esau despised his birthright. Okay, simple story. Look at this from the first half of life point of view. Jacob is the cunning one. He's the supplanter. He's the heel catcher. It's kind of like a jock and a nerd kind of story. You know, Esau is the jock. He's out there in the field. He thinks he's got it all together. He is the firstborn. He's got the birthright. He's the powerful one. He knows how to hunt. He can bring home the bacon. He's kind of complacent. You know, he's overconfident a little apathetic about certain things, but he thinks he's got it all going on. Jacob is the one who knows he's in second position. He knows he's got to step up because his father obviously favors his brother. And so he's the one who's got all the cunning. He's the one who's always scheming and trying to work things out. Everybody is focused on the birthright. Everybody is focused on control. Everybody is focused on power and what that will bring them, the advantages it will bring them in their lives. 
And in their own ways, each one is working toward those things. Right? And so Jacob successfully gets Esau to sell his birthright. I think Esau probably didn't give it a second thought, didn't think it was really real. And so Jacob and his mother both connive together so that when Isaac is ready to give the birthright, to give the blessing to Esau, they sneak in and he steals the birthright by pretending to be his brother. He actually puts sheepskin on his arms so his father, who has become blind, will feel all the hair on his arms and think it's really him. And he successfully gets the blessing. And the blessing can't be undone. And of course, Esau is furious and he wants to kill his brother. And so Jacob takes his stuff and he flees into northern Syria and he's there for years and years. And the brothers are unreconciled. Decades later, when Jacob has his wife and his flocks and and his riches and all of his people with him, he knows that he needs to go back home and he wants to reconcile with his brother, but he's afraid of him because he knows what he can do. And when he gets close into Canaan, he hears that his brother is coming with 400 men and so now he's really afraid. So he sends his flocks ahead as peace offerings. He splits his camp into sections so that maybe he can only destroy one at a time. And he's taking all these precautions. When he finally meets his brother, Esau, on the other side of the river, what does Esau do? It's like a prodigal son moment. He runs to him. He embraces him and he kisses him. At some point along the way in this time, Esau had made the transition from the first half of life to the second half of life. And right before Jacob goes to meet him, the night before he meets his brother, that's the night that he meets the Lord and wrestles with him all night long and finally breaks down his own dependence on his own ability to make things happen, gets the wound in his hip and realizes he's not equal to everything. And when he meets his brother, he's a different person who has now transitioned. In the first half of life, the birthright was everything. In the second half of life, to these two men, after decades apart, they realize the birthright is not important. Jacob tries to give them the flocks. Esau doesn't want them. I have all I need. What is important to them now? Brotherhood, family, connection. Nothing else matters. They finally have realized what is important in life. And the rest just kind of goes away. Now, it's still there. They still tend their flocks. They still protect their family and their camp. But their priorities have changed. Their choices have changed. Their actions have changed. It's so hard to go from the first half of life to the second half of life. It probably took years, maybe decades, for Esau to get over his anger at his brother. And it certainly did for Jacob as well. It only comes with a loss of the illusion of life. We're not told what happened in Esau's life. We get more of the details of Jacob's life. But something happened. Something changed in them to allow them to let go, to see past the illusion and see that there was something else. But it dies hard and we grieve over it. And we try to stay in the familiar place. We do everything we can. We cling on to the things that we think we know, the people that give us comfort, the institutions and and the communities 
that are there for us. This is why Jesus tells us, unless you are willing and ready to hate your father and mother and sister and brother, your children, and even your own life, you can't follow me. That sounds really harsh. Now the word there, sana, hate, doesn't mean a malicious hate the way we talk about hate. It just means to prefer less. It means if you can't, let that go. Stop clinging to the things that are familiar, the things that you think you understand. Then you're never going to be able to move into the purity of this moment that I'm showing you right now, to the freedom that lets go of all of that stuff to find the deeper connection that is really there. And unfortunately, our institutions around us are no help. Because institution, think about it, institution are first half of life creatures. Institutions are first half of life expressions. They're like corporate organisms. They have to eat and they have to grow and they have to do that constantly or they die. And so they're like the antithesis of what the actual deeper task, the task within is all about. Yes, we will be involved in those things, but they aren't us and they aren't why we're really here. We're not here to grow and to build and to accumulate as institutions, as companies, as churches must. I tell people all the time, I love being a pastor, but I really don't like running a church. A church is an institution. It has to grow and it has to eat and it has to consume. It has to do those things consistently or it's going to die. Now, because we keep trying to grow and to keep this, this, this group going allows us all to be here, and that's a good thing. But if I allow myself to get lost, to think that's what it's all about, to identify with that institutional way of thinking, then I've lost my whole reason for being a pastor, and I disqualify myself from having the right to sit here and talk to you people. I shouldn't be doing that if that's what I'm about. But it's a day-to-day struggle, isn't it? For every single one of us, isn't it? With your families, with your jobs, with your hopes, with your dreams, with your fears, with your doubts, all pulling you into the future, all telling you that there's something out there that's going to make you whole and give you meaning and purpose, that's the illusion. That's what's so hard to give up. That's why Jesus' words are so poignant. Unless you're going to hate your father and mother, do you know what that sounded like to a first century Jew? To them to whom family was everything. To be out of family was tantamount to an execution, a death sentence, capital punishment. Hate your father and mother? It was also breaking one of the Ten Commandments, punishable by death, punishable by stoning. But of course, Jesus was speaking metaphorically. But the point was there. Oh, well, I'll follow you, Lord, but you know, first let me bury my my father and my mother. Let the dead bury the dead. You come follow me. That's not telling him that he's supposed to re, you know, disrespect his parents or take care of his family duties. It's a mindset. If that is your excuse, if you're clinging on to the familiar because you're afraid to move forward, afraid to answer this call of life, then you can't go where Jesus is going. And he loves you just the same. And he'll sit at table with you and give you a big old hug. But you just can't go where I'm going. We've talked about this in terms of the hero's journey. We've talked about this in terms of rites of passage. We've talked about this in terms of the stages of spiritual growth. There's so many other ways that you can overlie these understandings, but here it is. This is the demarcation point. We have to see it if we're actually going to be able to move forward. The good news is that even though the institutions 
by their very nature, may not be able to help us in where Jesus is trying to take us. There are always individuals within the institutions that will and do. One of my favorite heroes of the church, and this is a name I do know, is Francis of Assisi. He was amazing. But he understood. He followed this same path. He was a merchant's son. He had everything handed to him on a silver platter. But he let go of it all when he finally realized after a stint at war in a battle and that curtain was was pulled and the illusion was broken for him, he came back and he stripped himself naked, completely naked in the town square and renounced everything that his family and everything that his father had for him. And he began living in poverty. He had a vision that that Jesus told him to rebuild his church. He thought literally that meant to rebuild the ruins of San Damiano, the little church down the road, and he started to do that. But then he realized he was supposed to revitalize the church that had become so corrupt and had strayed so far in 1,200 years from Jesus' words. And he actually went to the Pope and spoke truth to power. He went to Jerusalem and spoke truth to Saladin and and the Saracens. It's an amazing story. There are those who will show us that the way still exists even within our institutions that seem to be drifting and pulling in another direction. Personally, I met a Franciscan, a priest at Sarah Retreat. His name was Emery Tang. And he was the same way. Within the Catholic Church that I thought I knew because I grew up in a Catholic Church, here was this man who was so different I didn't understand first and second half of life then. This was 25 years ago. I didn't understand stage. I didn't, I didn't understand anything. I just knew he was different. And I wanted what he was having because he was so present. He, he, he could laugh from his toes and, and, and just enjoy the moment that we were having. There was something about him. And I asked him one time, why, don't, why do you stay a priest? Why do you stay in the Catholic? You're not like any Catholic I've ever met or known. And he just laughed and he said, you know, I've been a priest for 50 years. I'm going to die a priest. There was no need for him to change anything. He saw himself as a purifying agent, possibly an agent for change, especially among young people. He had a passion for young people within his church, within his community. He didn't need to go anywhere. These people, whether they're in print, whether we read about them or whether we actually meet them, can remind us what we're really here to do, what the task within the task really is. They can show us that the wax on and the wax off is always pointing to something that we really need to sink deeper into. And we can get into this Ecclesiastes state of mind that looks depressing at the first face, and it's going to feel depressing at first blush. You're going to grieve over the loss of the things you thought you knew. You're going to grieve over the things that were familiar and were comforting but if you're not willing to let them go, then you won't go to this next. And then you realize that even though it looks depressing, it looks despairing or debilitating, it's really liberating. It is the greatest liberation to be freed to really live our present moment without all the stuff that we put on it. In the first half of life, we see every moment only as the task itself. We're really just waxing the car. There's really nothing else here. And we're going to get paid really well if we wax the car. I'm going to get karate lessons if I wax the car. Right? It's just the task itself. And it's always the significance of the task is only in relationship to how it furthers the agenda that we brought to the party. What it is that we think we're trying to do. 
Second half of mentality strips the agenda away, strips the illusion away. And every moment then holds just that opportunity to serve the inner task of connection, of finding that oneness and that unity, to really be able to see another person and love them as they are, to see what they need, provide what we can, to leave each person better than we found them, and there really is nothing better than that. What if you went around every day and just left every person you encountered better than you found them? If you can't find meaning and purpose in that, if you can't find significance in that, then you know you're still in your first stage of life mentality. We need to move on, is what Jesus is telling us. Why is all this important? Why do we need to do this? Why does it have to be so hard? What Jesus tells us is is that the only way to see the Father is through this way, this way of descent before the ascent. There's no other way to do this. I am the way, he said. I'm the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. No one comes to the Father but through this way I'm showing you. And I'm going to show you the ultimate way. When I die on that cross and I go into that grave and I come out the other side, that is the shape. That is the way. That's what this looks like. And you will repeat that in your life. Not just once. Not just birth to death but in all of the other losses that you suffer and the grief that you go through and coming back out the other side. This is really what it's all about. If we can do this, if we can see this Father, if we can strip this away, then all purpose and meaning becomes possible for us. And this is what Jesus is trying to tell us. Take a look at John 5, verse 19. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you may marvel. Jesus never points to himself. Do you get that? Have you read that? Check it out. Look it up. He never points to himself. He has stripped away his own agenda. He has no agenda. His agenda is only what the Father shows him. What he sees the Father is doing, he does. And that's it. No personal agenda. He never points to himself. He's always pointing to the Father. Make your agenda the Father's agenda. Lose yourself in order to find yourself. Die so that you may live. Lose your life so that you may have it. All of these crazy sayings start to make perfect sense when you think of it through this filter, through this lens. This is where he's trying to get us. If it were his agenda, it would be first half. Only to the Father. There is no other Father. But even with all of that, even if what we have right in front of us, in print, in the Bible, we still lose it. We devolve into simply worshiping Jesus. Do you know, Jesus never said, worship me. Never said, worship me. He said, follow me, but he never said, worship me. And what's the difference between the two? To worship Jesus is relatively easy. It's risk-free. It's familiar. It can leave us unchanged. To worship him on far, at far, as God, as equal with God. That's why he doesn't tell us to do that. If we're really going to be changed, if we're really going to follow him, then we're going to actually move through the pattern 
of life through the pattern of this way, rather than seeing safely at a distance and worshiping him, he says, follow me. When you follow me, when you obey my commands, when you live as I live, then you are my disciples and not a moment before. And then you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. To follow Jesus and not just worship him changes everything, everything about our lives. It'll break us into the second half. We finally will realize that we can not hate, but let go of the things that have been holding us back and keeping us from going where Jesus is really going. And that's all he wants from us. He wants us to shine, as Thomas Merton said, to shine like the sun, to know who we are, that we are loved in this way and connected this way to our Father and to our God and to each other. And there's no other way to this but to take this journey. Let's pray. Father, once again, we just sit here in gratitude. We thank you, Lord. It's tempting to want to enumerate all the things that we have given from you, but you know, just this breath, just this life, just this sense of presence is enough. To know that we are here, sitting here, with the opportunity for everything that you already have given us, everything that you've already put on the table in front of us, to realize that it's all here and it's all now, that there's nothing apart from this moment that we need to bring in for this to be absolutely perfect, absolutely the reason that we're here in this life. Help us to realize that more and more, Lord. Help us to train ourselves to stop the thinking that takes us away from you and from each other and brings us back into reconciliation and harmony. Thank you for this opportunity, Lord. Thank you for loving us the way that you do. And never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.